broke into countless imperfect fragments what was already there. The cycles of birth and death have perpetuated that disintegrating force of creation. Samsara, the transmigration of the soul from one life to another, perpetuated the separateness of the individual. As the distinctions of caste survived, each generation paid the price of the misdeeds of earlier lives. The Indifference of Confucius in some parts of the world, even the most profound thinking people have not been worried by the mystery of creation. Everyday concerns have consumed their thought and focused their philosophy. They pay little attention to the puzzles of origin and destiny. Nor have they been troubled by the possibility of other worlds before or after this one. Are they the worse for it? Their indifference to the mysteries of creation has saved their energy for the work of this world but it has been a symptom, too, of a suspicion of change, a reluctance to imagine the new. When asked, what about death? Confucius retorted, we don't know yet about life. How can we know about death? Is it any wonder that the Chinese have left us a thin stock of creation myths? Among the great creators, the great spokesmen of ethical ideals, none is more miraculous than Confucius himself. He claimed no divine source for his teachings, nor any inspiration not open to everyone. Unlike Moses, the Buddha, Jesus, or Muhammad, he proclaimed no commandments. Confucius was never crucified, never martyred. He left little mark on the life of his time and aroused few disciples in his day. Born into the impoverished nobility, Confucius was left an orphan at an early age. Educated only in the traditional aristocratic pursuits of archery and music, he began in a low clerical position, overseeing the pasture of oxen and sheep. As he slowly climbed in the public service of his native state of Lu, he acquired a reputation for learning. By the time he was 53, in 498 B.C., Confucius left for greener fields. Trying his powers of persuasion for the next dozen years, he wandered from state to state. But he was no politician, and everywhere he failed. To every prince, Confucius preached his cliché sermon, govern for the benefit of the people, reduce taxes, recruit superior men of any origin. While Confucius failed as a politician, as a teacher, he was a spectacular success. His simple, open-ended maxims speak to us today. He offered a way of learning. His Socratic method never ended in dogmatic conclusions. Truth was always to be pursued, but never possessed. Study as if you were following someone you could not overtake and were afraid of losing. Confucius never pretended to have a divine message of which he was the chosen vehicle. People's problems could be solved not by supernatural forces, but only by their own and their ancestors' experience. And heaven was Confucius' name for the natural cosmic order that matched the ethical sense in every man. He would not appeal to any ruling being up there, in Confucius's world, each man had to find the way for himself. The teachings of Confucius have come down to us through his Analects, or Conversations, in 20 chapters and 497 verses, a miscellany of aphorisms, maxims, and episodes. As the centuries passed, the fragmentary teachings of Confucius were petrified into Confucianism. Under the Han Empire, the teachings of the Master were shaped into an ideology and became state dogma. But the Confucian emphasis on the family, 
morals, and the role of the good ruler did not satisfy the popular need for explanation of man and his place in the universe. Another school grew out of the effort to account for the mystery of the world, the spontaneity of man, and the wondrous variety of nature. This came to be known as Taoism, after Tao, or the way, drawing on folk currents and building on the writings of a mysterious master, Lao Tzu, an antidote and a complement to the rigid moralism of the later Confucians and their state religion. Taoism became both an elevated philosophy and a popular religion. While the Taoists were interested in man's relation to the cosmos and to nature, their subtle philosophy had no place for a creator. With their belief in oneness and non-being, the Taoists' poetic imagination was more interested in the unity of experience than in any conceivable power of a creator to make the new. Confucius himself, as far as we know, was not much interested in metaphysics or the origins of the universe, and his successors turned neither to creating gods nor to one creator god. Instead, they described creation as a process of natural forces. A key idea was their notion of the yin and the yang, which expressed their belief in the shaping, creative power of natural forces at work everywhere. The yin and the yang reached out across Asia to Japan, Vietnam, and Korea, where the yin-yang symbol was adopted for the national flag. In time, the Taoist ways of thinking about man and nature were assimilated into the renewed Confucian theorizing by the great synthesizer Chu Xi, who lived from 1130 to 1200. He said, In the beginning of the universe, there was only material force consisting of yin and yang. This force moved and circulated, turning this way and that. As this movement gained speed, a mass of sediment was pushed together, and since there was no outlet for this, it consolidated to form the earth in the center of the universe. The way of thought that brought together Confucian morality and Taoist sympathy with nature saw time as a series of cycles without beginning or end. Eternal harmony with everything properly proceeding from its procreating qi of material forces made novelty seem alien. The idea of the creation of something from nothing had no place in the universe of the yin and yang always in order, always in proper series. Unlike the Western world of a surprising creation of man at war with nature, the world of Confucius, transformed by Taoist currents, saw man at home among transformations, procreations, and recreations. The Silence of the Buddha The Buddha had no answer to the riddle of creation. Much of his appeal to millions around the world for 2,500 years came from his common-sense refusal to try to answer unanswerable questions. The Buddha's aim was not to know the world or to improve it, but to escape its suffering. His whole concern was salvation. The indifference of the Buddha to the tantalizing questions of creation had a source in the experience of the Gautama Buddha himself. The Buddha was interested in escaping the world and so aimed to make life on earth irrelevant. The Gautama Buddha whose estimated lifespan was from 561 to 483 B.C., willfully abandoned power and glory. Prince Siddhartha, later to be the Gautama Buddha, was born in Kapilavastu in northeastern India on the border of present-day Nepal. A prince of the kingdom of the Baikas, he was raised in fabled oriental luxury. Unlike the founder of Christianity or of Islam, the Gautama Buddha 
was not thought to be unique. The Gautama Buddha was not the first, nor would he be the last. He was another in an endless series of enlightened ones. He had not appeared on earth first as Gautama, for his perfect enlightenment could not have been attained in only one life. It must have been the result of his repeated earlier efforts in numerous incarnations. This full enlightenment was reached gradually during three incalculable aeons. In the first incalculable aeon, he does not yet know whether he will become a Buddha or not. In the second, he knows he will be a Buddha, but does not dare to say so openly. In the third, he knows for certain that one day he will be a Buddha, and fearlessly proclaims that fact to the world. Attaining Nirvana was everyone's hope, for the transmigrations of a soul finally dissolved the self, and so ended the suffering that came with all existence. The arrival of the Gautama Buddha on earth as Prince Siddhartha, about 561 B.C., was just another stage in the countless processes of his reincarnation. And his previous lives provided some of the most appealing passages in the Buddhist scriptures. They chronicle how his soul had stored up merit toward his reward of ever higher incarnations and final fulfillment in Buddhahood and Nirvana. Finally, as Prince Siddhartha, he had been born again into a life of luxury. Seven Brahmin priests predicted that if the boy stayed home, he would eventually become a universal monarch. But if he left home, he would become a Buddha. He was married off at the age of sixteen to his cousin Yashodhara, chaste and outstanding for her beauty, modesty and good breeding, a true goddess of fortune in the shape of a woman. And in due time, Yashodhara bore him a son. On his pleasure excursions, the young Gautama was awakened to human suffering. The gods dismayed him by images of old age and of disease. Finally, they showed him a corpse. Now, at the age of twenty-nine, Prince Siddhartha, not yet a Buddha, began his experimental search for truth, which meant a way out of the sufferings of the world. For himself and all mankind, he sought escape from creation. After the vision of the corpse, the gods sent a vision of a religious mendicant to remind Gautama of his mission to deliver mankind. Then and there, Buddhist scriptures report, he intuitively perceived the Dharma, the ultimate reality, the way, and made plans to leave his palace for the homeless life. He walked toward the roots of a sacred fig tree, now called the Bodhi tree, intent on his high purpose. Kala, a high-ranking serpent, who was as strong as a king elephant, was awakened by the incomparable sound of his footsteps and saluted Gautama, who seated himself cross-legged in the most immovable of postures and said he would not arise until he had received enlightenment. The great seer, using his skill at meditation, entered a deep trance. In the first watch of the night, that 6 p.m. to 10 p.m., he recalled all his own former lives, the thousands of births he had been through. He saw that the world of samsara, of birth and death, was as unsubstantial as the pith of a plantation tree. In the second watch, 10 p.m. to 2 a.m., he attained the perfectly pure heavenly eye and saw that the rebirth of beings depended on becoming just as no cord of heartwood is found in a plantain tree when its layers are peeled off one by one. In the third watch, 2 a.m. to 6 a.m., he saw the real nature of the world, how greed, delusion, and ignorance produced evil, and prevented getting off the wheel of rebirth. 
The climax of his trance was enlightenment, the state of all knowledge. Gautama, now at the age of thirty-five, had become a Buddha. He arose and found five ascetic monks. To them he preached the middle way to enlightenment, which became the essential doctrine of Buddhism, the holy eightfold path. Right views, right intentions, right speech, right conduct, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. And the four holy truths. These truths were, first, that all existence, birth, decay, sickness, and death, is suffering. Second, that all suffering and rebirth are caused by man's selfish craving. Third, that nirvana, freedom from suffering, comes from the cessation of all craving. And fourth, that the stopping of all ill and craving comes only from following the holy eightfold path. These steps to the extinction of self were the way of the Buddha, the way of enlightenment. The Homerica scriptures of the Greeks. The Greeks' spirit of inquiry grew with the centuries, but their sacred epic had little to say about beginnings. Instead, it was a saga of human adventure and human gods. Homer's two testaments, the Iliad and the Odyssey, remain the first and greatest epics of Western civilization. Homer's survival is a stark contrast to the fate of the Greeks' other creations. The Acropolis lies in ruins, and there's probably not one complete freestanding statue surviving from the Great Age. We cannot hear Greek music. While we know the names of at least 150 ancient Greek writers of tragedy, what remain for us are mere samples. In the Hellenistic Age, after the death of Alexander the Great, educated Greeks continued to learn Homer by heart, much as later the people in the West would know their Bible, or as Muslims memorize their Koran. The Iliad and the Odyssey took form centuries before the invention of the Greek alphabet. The Homerica epics then were inevitably an oral creation. Homer's world of gods and goddesses bypassed the perplexing questions of the first creation of the earth and of man. In the Iliad and the Odyssey, we see man and the gods fully matured. By showing their gods and goddesses as immortal men and women with all the human passions, fears, and hopes, they made men and women the more godlike. The hybrid nature of man would remain a dominant theme in Judaism and Christianity. The Greeks shaped their gods in man's image, but Judaism and Christianity would turn the question around and start from God. By making man in God's image, they committed themselves to facing the mystery of creation with endless consequences. Part 2. A Creator God What was God doing before he created the world? Martin Luther replied, he sat under a...